I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Hey, we are taking a break to get ready for year A, so we are going to go back and do one of our best episodes, and instead of Luke 21, verses 5 through 9 on the temple and the signs of the end, we're going to look at the same episode in Mark 13, 1 through 8. Alan's going to suggest to us why this might be a really difficult passage to have. So, Alan, why don't you take it away? Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, Our gospel lesson this week really represents an extreme example of the weakness inherent in the gaps in the Revised Common Lectionary. We're all familiar. If you've used the lectionary for any length of time, you know that the the lectionary is almost notorious for what it leaves out. And here, I think this is one of the most egregious examples. It really makes no sense to try to Um, take these few verses and separate them from the whole discourse in Mark Mm -hmm. 13 because they're of a piece. I mean, it's it's a whole discourse. Uh, You know, if you read the discourse, you clearly see shifts in emphasis, um, but it is meant to be read as a whole and not piecemeal. And so for that reason, I'll be making reference to the context of the chapter as a whole in our discussion today. And that's kind of a hint, really, as to where, where I'm headed, at least with my segment on how, how to treat this, you know, in a, in a sermon. Right. Well, and I think, Alan, you pointed out something important that sometimes I... I, I I forget about because I just see the text in front of me, you know, especially if you go to one of those uh, lectionary sites, you know, just that text comes up and you sometimes forget you need to look what comes before and after. And even my seminary professor suggested, look, if you need to add to your reading, please do so so that you are crafting something that really works for your congregation. Right. One of the things we're going to see, however, is that uh, a couple of weeks after this particular lesson, we have the rest of uh, the chapter in Luke, not go. in Mark, <laughs> which I'm not so sure why they did that. But anyway, so um, we'll talk about that as we get into it. Sure, sure. So why don't you just take off then and let us know, yeah. you know how, how this begins, how it's put together. Well, and part of the problem has to do with the question of the composition of this chapter. And options out there in the scholarly world include that Mark has used, and used perhaps a written source mm-hmm for this chapter, uh, a coherent written source. And actually some suggested that this was not a Christian uh, document, but rather a Jewish document mm-hmm. that Mark um, mm-hmm. took over. Uh, the second option would be that Mark pulled together both oral and written materials. And the third one is that basically Mark res- composed the chapter out of scripture and various oral and written sources. Mm -hmm. So it really boils down to the question of how much of this chapter actually goes back to Jesus. That's the question. Well, you know, as you're saying this, this reminds me that scholars as a whole recognize this is a little different. This is a little special than maybe some of the other things we've looked at in Mark. I mean, it, it seems maybe out of context or well, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but it, but it does, there's a lot alerting them to say where'd it come from. There's, there's several, there's several issues that we'll, we'll talk okay. about. Yeah, okay. There's several issues that we'll talk about that, that really um, 
do, do point to the fact that this chapter, I mean, and this chapter is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is, it is, um, yes. But it, it, it seems kind of strange when you compare it with the rest of Jesus' teachings. Right. Okay, yeah. so let's, you know, the big thing is it's called an apocalyptic discourse. Right. Is, that, is that what it is? I mean, well, that's what I Well, I think learned. it's probably somewhat right and somewhat wrong. So in terms of the genre of this chapter, it doesn't fit the pattern of apocalypse. Okay. You know, there are several dozen Jewish apocalypses, including the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. including the apocalypse of Peter, including uh, things like books like Baruch and First Enoch mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and things like this. And they all kind of have a same pattern. Uh, they, they're, they're couched as the recounting of a dream or a vision that took the form of a symbolic survey of all of history leading up to the end of the present age. And so actually, based on that um, uh, understanding of the genre, Revelation itself probably isn't a, a, a pristine um, apocalypse. It has a lot more going on in mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. than than just an apocalypse. So, so in terms of the genre, this chapter doesn't fit the the genre of apocalyptic. Um, however, there are traces of apocalyptic thought here, and that's probably why I think it gets that's why that it name. gets put there, right? Yeah. And so, the just to back up a little bit, the thought world of apocalyptic literature originated in a time when the people of Israel were dominated by foreign powers immediately following the Maccabean era, and it's the thought world of the oppressed who seek vindication from their oppressors by God. Mm-hmm. And indeed, part of the reason for apocalyptic was the problem of explaining why God would let his people be conquered in the first place. Mm-hmm. Very likely Daniel is the first representative of that thought world in the Bible. And I know there's some people who want to date Daniel early in a very pre- pre-exilic um, time frame. Most, um, most uh, scholars of Daniel will, will, will place it either in the Maccabean age or right after the Maccabean right. age. Right, that's what I learned. That's what I learned yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so by the time of the New Testament then, you know, this is two, three hundred years before mm-hmm. Jesus, then apocalyptic thought seems to have worked its way into the Jewish imagination pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Well, that's how ideas work. You know, they, mm-hmm. they work their way in. And what we're going to see that in my section later yes. on is how this works its way in. And well, so we see it reflected here. Okay. We see it reflected in other places in, in, in the Gospels, but we also see it reflected throughout the New Testament. What, what are maybe the problems with apocalyptic thought? Well, I think one of the main problems with apocalyptic thought is that it was extremely dualistic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a, an extreme example of all or nothing thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the righteous are those who are on God's side, and all others are excluded, and there is no middle ground. Mm-hmm. You're either righteous and on God's side, or you're wicked and, and that's it. And so the goal toward which history is marching is the final vindication of God's purposes and God's people through the violent destruction of the wicked. And this mm-hmm. is another problem with apocalyptic right. is it tends to it's be violent. violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this destruction is <laughs> attributed to divine intervention. And to me, you know, one of the challenges with apocalyptic thought is it has just enough connections with biblical theology to seem to make it compatible. 
But I would argue that what we have here is a jealous God who mm-hmm. takes vengeance on those who oppress his people, not a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, right. which is the revelation that God gives to Moses in the cleft right. of the rock in Exodus 34, 6. And that phrase echoes throughout the Bible. Exactly. Now, you know, let me say this. You know, there are passages where... God is called a jealous God, right? Right, right. But the jealousy or the zeal of God for his people is really more akin to a very passionate love that will brook no rival. And and so, you know, there the hence you have God um, um, judging his people and in a way to lead them back into the covenant relationship with him. Uh, so there, there are that's what I would say. There, there are enough connections with biblical statements that make it seem like it's compatible. But it, this whole viewpoint of the righteous are on God's side, the wicked are the others, right. and and the goal of history is that God is going to destroy the wicked through the hands of the righteous in this great battle. That just doesn't fit with the fundamental uh, nature of who God is in the Bible. But there it is. So, yeah. so how how do we understand it if we can't don't understand it as it is literally presented? Well, to some extent, I would say that apocalyptic th- thinking represents sort of a failure of nerve of truly biblical and prophetic vision of God and God's purposes in this world. And you know, I think part of the part of the challenge in trying to understand this particular chapter is whether or not it goes back to Jesus. Right. Um, now we should note first of all, that this chapter does not represent a full-blown apocalyptic vision. That's true. That's true. But there are elements of apocalyptic thinking here. A time of persecution Mm -hmm. leading to the end of this age. There is a priority placed on the elect as those whom God will save. And Mm -hmm. we've seen that, you know, when we dealt with John's gospel. And Mm -hmm. we talked about that a little bit, the influence of apocalyptic there on a community that was under threat, right? Uh, also, in this chapter, we find uh, that when, when Jesus speaks about the coming of the Son of Man, there are these cosmic portents. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, the, the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood, these kinds of things. And, and we find the, this, this kind of language already in the prophetic books of the, of the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible. But we should also note, I think, that, the, that some of the themes in this chapter are reflected elsewhere in the synoptic gospel tradition. Mm-hmm. So the consensus is that while some aspects of this discourse likely do go back to Jesus, and I would say the emphasis on coming persecutions, we've already seen some hint Mm -hmm. about that, the need for endurance and watchfulness, we see that elsewhere, Mm -hmm. and the coming of Son of Man, uh, those are the foremost, I think, among these materials that go back to Jesus. Mark very likely composed the discourse as we have it now. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's not authentic, Right. But I think it does give us the opportunity to evaluate to what extent some of the apocalyptic ideas actually reflect Jesus' teaching, or as with as we saw in John's gospel, they, they may reflect the situation Mark was addressing. You know, as you were, as, if you've been going through this, that's the first thing that came to mind is what is going on in Mark's exactly. time. And, and we know that it's a very, very, very intense time. It's a time when... Um, when civil war is really, we're on the break of civil war, mm-hmm. or the, 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 the destruction of the temple is at hand. I mean, all these things that make people, that, that are really throwing people out of, out, out of their, 
out of their belief system. I mean, it's sure. how do I make sense of it, right? Well, and, and this is not something that's actually new. This has been going on for some time. I would, you might even say this has been building right, since the age building. of the Maccabees. Uh, yes. And, and certainly in Jesus' day, you know, um, Josephus talks about the uh, uprisings under Pilate's governorship, you know, that right. were violent. And right. so, so this is something that's going, been going on for some time. Right. And then, of course, with the continued growth of the Roman Empire that's mm-hmm. that that's now just taken over the area. Pretty so much. you've yeah. got you know th- this move from being you know this king and this province this this uh, type of um, um, tributary relationship to mm-hmm. now oh, we just are we're going to take we're right. in control completely. I mean, all yeah. those things are right. are playing to obviously there's something wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, actually, much of the debate about this chapter and whether it reflects Jesus' actual words is centered not on the apocalyptic ideas, um, and I will note that many New Testament scholars have simply assumed that Jesus embraced at least a modified apocalyptic Mm -hmm, viewpoint, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but rather the the debate about this chapter and whether it reflects Jesus' actual words is centered on the more historical event of the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Now, we know this happened in in 70 CE, and some would argue that uh, Mark and the other synoptic gospels must have been written after that date, in part due to skepticism about Jesus' ability to predict these events, but also due to the almost uncanny resemblance of some details to the actual events themselves. And for my part, I would simply say that may simply reflect the the evangelist editorial touches after the fact. Yeah, yeah. So we do have implications elsewhere in the gospel tradition that Jesus made some kind of statement about the future destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. We saw that uh, in John chapter 2 when, when, when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And we see it also in the end of Jesus' life when the false witnesses claim that Jesus mm-hmm. spoke about the destruction of the temple. And, you know, as I think about this, if there's any... Any foreign, if there's a foreign invader in, and there's something like a temple that you t- to connect not only God but the, the center of power, you're going to get rid of it. It's exactly. pretty obvious. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of a historical yeah. thing, right? <laughs> right. The, it's the destruction of temples is nothing new, right, in the history of the world. And I don't think it would have taken any supernatural insight into the situation to recognize that Judea under the Roman administration was a powder keg and that the Romans would not tolerate that situation exactly. indefinitely. Exactly. And it actually, uh, Adela Yabra Collins in her Mark commentary attributes all of this, uh, this emphasis on the destruction of, of the temple and the whole, and really this, this whole discourse. I, I prefer to call it the discourse on the coming of the son of man myself, mm-hmm. rather than calling it an apocalyptic yeah, discourse. I like that. Anyway, she attributes this whole discourse to Mark's observance of events leading up to the final destruction of the temple. And she notes that Mark's intent was to provide the community with an interpretation of the first Jewish war with Rome. And even Mm. more specifically, that what moved Mark to write this um, chapter was the appearance of popular prophets and claimants to messianic status during that war with the Jewish war with Rome. Oh, that might make, that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And so and that, that really does kind of connect with some of the content of what we'll, we'll, we'll find here in the chapter. You know, I made some comments about the structure of the temple, but, but let's tell us about the temple. Tell us about the temple in this passage and yeah. how the disciples are looking at it. So the discourse begins itself with Mark 
um, stating that as Jesus exited the temple, one of the disciples said, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And so we're talking about Herod's temple, right. which was a rebuilding of the second temple. So the, the first temple would have been Solomon's temple. The second temple was the temple that was rebuilt um, after the return from the exile, but it was a fairly meager structure in comparison with Solomon's temple. And so um, Herod, in about 20 BCE, began to rebuild it as a much larger yes. and much more elaborate complex. In fact, he, he expanded the temple into a complex that comprised some 36 acres, which would be about 30 football fields. The largest of the stones that have been found is 46 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet and weighs approximately 400 tons. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and Josephus it, gives us a reference to some of these things. You know, it's interesting, and I'm going to cite later, both Alan and Calvin are looking at Josephus for their information, <laughs> but uh, Calvin pulls in that Josephus um, tells us that it took... Um, 10,000 men, eight mm-hmm. years to build it. So mm-hmm. int- interesting. So yeah. we're, we're trusting huge, Josephus here. It was a huge uh, complex. And it's, so it's no wonder that the disciples were impressed with the size and grandeur of the facility. I think this was by design. Herod oh, had in, embarked on this um, uh, project of, of, of basically demonstrating his power through vast building projects. And I think the temple was at the heart of that endeavor on, on Herod's part. It, you know, and, and an aside, this is not a typical today. I mean, when, when Dubai is setting out to build the biggest building in the world, mm-hmm. it is definitely a, mm-hmm. a, a very purposeful thing absolutely. to show power absolutely. And, and importance. So Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Now, I, I think Jesus' response then must have left the disciples positively dumbfounded. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon one another. All will be thrown down. Um, you know, I imagine they had a hard time even fathoming that. Uh, absolutely. Because it was built as a fortress, you know, and it was, uh, yes. it was huge. Now, um, given the size then and magnitude of the buildings, I think the disciples must have had really some difficulty comprehending how this could happen mm-hmm. at all. Right. And so in Mark's discourse, they're, you know, they're leaving the temple and apparently they're walking eastward from the temple and they stop on the Mount of Olives mm-hmm. and, and off that, that, that probably offered a pretty, um, pretty good view of the whole complex. And there, Peter, James, John, and Andrew began to ask him when this would happen and what the sign would be that it would be accomplished. Now, note, we have, you know, throughout the gospel tradition, we tend to have uh, an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Here it's Peter, James, yeah. and John, and Peter's yeah, brother, I saw Andrew. That. Uh-huh who are sort of an inner circle of four, which is interesting. This, I think this is the only time we see this in the gospel tradition. So either this is a device of the discourse to move to the, to the perspective of apocalyptic thinking, or perhaps the disciples had themselves been exposed to yeah. these ideas. Yeah. Because to me it seems like, you know, they would have had to already had some kind of sense that there was this, there was this notion of a future um, a catastrophic conclusion that would bring this age to a close and inaugurate the new age mm-hmm, and that, mm-hmm. that there would be cosmic catastrophes and, and things like this, not only in the heavens, but also on earth. Right. And so, you know, uh, either they were aware 
of of that kind of thinking, and that's what enabled them to move from "Wow, what grandeur!" with these stones and these buildings to "Oh, when will this happen?" That not one stone will be left on right, another. right, exactly. Or perhaps you know, some have suggested maybe Mark used this as a as a narrative device to to just move the move the discourse well, into that framework. You know, Alan's are talking, and of course, we are in a great age of anxiety right now, and mm-hmm. so what goes on in our minds this impending doom and so they're living in this great era of anxiety they're living in this great era of of death destruction etc so of course well the the jewish people had a precarious existence they live by the pleasure of the roman empire or they die at the pleasure of the roman Empire. exactly and they know this and now roman empire is not only taken over but that means they've also taken over their control of the food the control Mm of 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 coinage everything Mm -hmm. and and that's a um that's a really big deal so that these ideas start to grow i think is is probably makes sense sure yeah sure so let's let's move on so how does jesus respond to them well jesus seems to ignore their question (laughs) (laughs) i mean he doesn't even answer their question at all and and rather he turns to a more important threat apparently in his mind he says beware that no one leads you to lead you astray in mark 13 Mm -hmm. 5 and then he proceeds to explain this danger he says many will come in my name and say i am he and they will lead many astray Now, the idea of being led astray by those who falsely claim to represent Christ is one that has a connection with uh, the apocalyptic themes in the New Testament. We see it primarily in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Mm -hmm. accounts of of this particular discourse, but you also see it in in some of the New Testament documents, and especially in Revelation, Mm -hmm. where you have... um, um, a, a. you know, about 40% of the occurrences of the Greek verb planao in the New Testament are devoted to this idea of of a warning against being led astray by those who who seem to falsely represent or claim to represent Christ falsely. What, um, what, tell us what planao means, what that word is. Well, planao can mean to go astray or to deceive either way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now... Um, you know, one of the things we should note is that there were figures who, who arose in this time period, and, and specifically in the time of the Jewish war, there were several that Josephus names. Mm. Now, there were others who, who arose before that that are mentioned even in the New Testament uh, in, in the book of Acts, but Josephus names several figures mm. that emerged in this role in his account of the Jewish war. There was Menachem, the son or grandson of Judas the mm-hmm. Galilean, who had... Who had led an upri- similar mm-hmm. uprising um, um, around the beginning of the first century. There was mm-hmm. John of Geshala. Also, he, he, he was sort of one of these, um, uh, t- take, taken on one of the, he was also one of these who had taken on a role of something of a messianic figure during the, the war. And then there was Simon, son of Gioras. And um, so there were actual people who were who were doing this, who were who were who were claiming to be messianic leaders who were going to throw off the yoke of Rome. And and, um, you know, the 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 idea then is that Mark would have could have been aware of this at the time he was writing his gospel. And and and, you know, some think perhaps even that what was happening was that. You know, when you're when you're faced with the choice of either putting your faith in a in a in a Christ who says the Son of Man will come again with the clouds in great glory at right. some day 
unspecified versus someone who's saying, follow me and I will lead our people to throw off the yoke of the Romans. You know, a lot of people choose the person who's right there at hand. Right. And and so Mark is trying to head that off. Yes, I I agree. I I, I agree. So um, there's a whole bunch of signs then Mm -hmm. we we talk about how does Jesus handle this next part? So this is sort of the end of the introduction to the discourse. And Jesus warns them not to be alarmed at the signs that are to come. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come in Mark 13, 7. Mm And here he moves the discourse to the question of the end that is coming. Now, no, let's note, I mean, the, the question began with Jesus' prediction that the temple would be destroyed, right? Right. right. And so the disciples say, well, what will be the sign that this will happen, mm-hmm. right? And, and so then Jesus moves to signs of the end. Right. And, and, and this has been kind of a, another issue that has made this chapter a little bit difficult to read because the question is, well, is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple? Right. Or is he talking about the coming of the Son of Man in the end? Yes. Or is he talking about a little bit of both? And it seems like there's a little bit of both mixed in here. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, again, Jesus adopts sort of the stance of a prophetic teacher in this Mm -hmm. rather than an apocalyptic seer. He doesn't claim to have a vision of the end. But he does address the question of the end. Mm-hmm. And before we get there, Jesus will find will address the coming of persecutions, the need mm-hmm. for endurance. Uh, he will say that the the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world, and then finally, he will come to the coming of the Son of Man, which marks the end. Which marks the end. But then, then he goes to immediate things that they can be looking for. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, in this in this setting of the introduction to the discourse, he's he's focusing on more immediate concerns. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, um, beware that lest you be led astray. And here in verse eight, he says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, to some extent, I would say (laughs) that there's nothing unusual about any of this. I mean, um, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines. This has been the course of world history. This is human history. From the beginning, right? Exactly. This is history, yes. But in this context, however, Jesus associates these difficulties with the end. And he could be referring to Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue that has uh, a head of gold Mm -hmm. and a torso of silver and legs of bronze and then feet that are mixed with rock and clay. Mm -hmm. And, and, and basically Daniel interprets it as a course of four, the course of four successive empires that will precede the kingdom that has, that will not end Mm -hmm. that God will establish. So uh, again, this is, and the reference in Daniel chapter two is the reference to what is to be which again mm-hmm. sort of echoes what Jesus says, These things, this must take place, right? Mm-hmm. So there is this sense of um, not necessarily determinism, but a, but a sense of that these are, the, you know, don't get disturbed by these things because these things are going to have to happen. It, I may be jumping too far. You know, what I'm thinking about, don't be disturbed by these things. So can you jump and say, so keep following Jesus, keep, um, keep, 
keep doing the kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that, keep... that's part of the message. Okay. That's part of the message of this chapter because in one place, you know, Jesus recounts the persecutions that they will that they will endure, and he says, you know, not only will the Spirit give you the words to say in those moments, but then he also says, you know, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, so there is this emphasis on persevering in okay. faith and in right. discipleship to right. Jesus. Right. Instead of just jumping on the bandwagon of, oh, I might as well give up because the exactly. end is here. Okay. Or, or or panicking or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, Jesus does point to this idea of endurance. Now, on the other hand, in the section where Jesus deals with the the coming, um, perhaps the the destruction of Jerusalem, he, he does say, when you see these things happening in the temple and in Jerusalem, you know, you should flee to the hills. What? <laughs> so what? It's, a, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, uh, that's why this chapter is a little bit challenging mm-hmm, because it's it almost is. a two-headed monster, you know. Because you have this, you have this part that talks about, you know, these are the are the afflictions, these are the distresses, these are the persecutions that are going to happen in connection with the course of of how things are going to work out until the coming of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you have this extreme dire catastrophe of the destruction of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. the destruction of the temple, and you know. Yeah, if they stay in the in the path of the Roman army, they're going to be killed, and mm-hmm. so they're not going to want to remain yeah. in Jerusalem when that happens. When mm-hmm. they see those things happening, they're going to want to, okay. want to leave. Okay. So we have to, I think, recognize that there's kind of two things going on here at once, almost. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like there's a combination of this kind of undefinable future that we mm-hmm. know, and yet this immediate yes. this immediate need and yes. and living in that get out of the way don't you, yes. don't 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 challenge God here you, you go well and I wouldn't even say don't challenge God I would say don't challenge the Romans here because <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna walk all over they're you. gonna walk all over you yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay yeah. very good now um, you know in this context then he says. Um, these afflictions, these trials, these, um, you know, signs that may cause concern are but the beginning of the birth pangs Mm -hmm. in Mark 13, 8. And elsewhere in the Bible, birth pangs are associated with the difficulties suffered by the people of God as the new age is breaking into the present one. Um, it's not a common theme, but it, you do find it in mm-hmm. that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, Isaiah 13. And, you know, this is one thing we need to understand is that the prophets before the apocalyptic movement got going did point forward to a day of the Lord that would bring mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thing, that would that would change things radically, right? And so Isaiah has several passages, several chapters in his book mm-hmm. that address the coming day of the Lord. And so in Isaiah 13, in connection with the day of the Lord, he speaks about the birth pangs that will that will come upon people in that time. Interestingly, in 1 Thessalonians 5:3, Paul also speaks about mm-hmm. birth pangs in connection with the coming of the day of the Lord, but here the day of the Lord in Paul is a reference to the coming of Christ. Right, right. Um, but I think in general, the whole idea plays into the theme of watchfulness and endurance. Again, that that does come up several times in, in the discourse uh, itself and in this chapter. So, uh, you know, this plays into the idea of that you mentioned before that the 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 notion really here is one of of persevering in discipleship to christ Mm -hmm. being watchful um uh but 
watchfulness really is more about um, perseverance in in staying faithful and true to God and, and faithful and true to Christ. You know, I think it's some, as you've pointed out, I think you pointed out how we can address this as, as, as we're preaching it, but yet at the same time, I'm feeling like I need a little bit more to, mm-hmm. to round this out. Mm-hmm. So what's next? Well, and you know, unfortunately, that's where the Revised Common Lectionary kind of leaves us a little bit in a lurch. You know, we just get the very beginning of this discourse. Now, we will pick up with Luke's version of the discourse uh, for, on the first Sunday of Advent, uh, in, in which is year C which is just a couple of weeks away. But to me, it seems strange that next week we shift to John for the reign of Christ Sunday. I, I think it would have made much more sense theologically and biblically to have taken up the rest of Mark's discourse for reign of Christ Sunday, mm-hmm. because that's the whole point is that the son of man is yeah. going to come with great power and glory, right? I mean, what, 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 what fits more naturally with reign of Christ Sunday than, than the coming of the Son of Man? So possibly, <laughs> you know, if you wanted to, you could jump off of the, the, the Revised Common Lectionary yeah. and do that yeah. last part of, yeah. of Mark, and that might be a good a good thing to do. In fact, I might do that myself. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, the, the if you do that, you have to be aware that the very next week, you're back in Luke 21, which takes up the rest of the discourse. Right. So, so you, you, if you're going to do dipping. that, well, and, and, you know, I'm thinking about this a little bit in the, in the sense of, you know, there's going to be some repetition anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think the, the point of this text here is, is more the sense of persevering and endurance. Mm-hmm. No matter what comes, no matter the, you know, how, how frightening, you know, th- things get, you know, you continue to persever, persevere in discipleship. I think you put your finger on that very, very clearly early on. I think, I think in the connection with Advent, you know, when we take up Luke's um, um, conclusion, I guess, to this discourse, um, obviously the theme of watchfulness, I think there will be, will be mm. much more um, oh, sure. natural really so in connection with the, mm-hmm. with the season of Advent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So basically, given the brevity of our passage for this week, I would say that it's almost imperative that we treat it as the introduction to the whole chapter, which means bringing in the content of the chapter into any sermon, at least to fill out the context of what these Mm, verses are trying to accomplish. And I think the main themes of the coming of the Son of Man and the persecutions of those who follow him faithfully will face and the resulting need for endurance um, and watchfulness are themes that we find elsewhere in the gospel tradition. And I think that they will bear fruit for any kind of uh, attempt to try to preach on this in a coherent way. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, well, I feel much better about it already. So <laughs> <laughs> Good, thanks. All right, thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, Christy's going to talk to us about how some of these ideas related to apocalypticism and the end of the world um, played themselves out in the era of the Reformation. So uh, tell us about this, Christy. Yeah, you bet. So I look today um, very specifically at the commentaries again to see how Calvin reacted to it. And I think in my assessment is that Calvin is trying to make sense of of this period he's in, which... Um, and not only he, he's in, but then how that relates to um, the period of, of the trial and tribulation um, before Jesus comes again. And it seems that if Jesus can come to make it better, um, then why this time? And yet it is 
it, this is all scriptural. So Calvin does his best to explain it. Mm. Um, it does reflect a deeper fear about the impending judgment that really embodies that Reformation era. So when we're mm. putting it into that broad context of, of, of time, um, people are spending time wonder if, wondering, while in those people during the Reformation, if, if they're witnessing the end times and they're watching. So mm. they look at a passage like this and they say, well, this is obviously a reflection of the end times that we see now. Right. And, and so they're looking at it as apocalyptic text. Even as we talked about it, it isn't necessarily a good, true example of it. Well, and you know, one of the, one of the challenges, uh, just as an aside, um, this wasn't a, a big issue uh, until after a, a thou, the 1000 AD. Right. Because right. up until that time, the church believed they were in the millennium and that Christ was reigning. Right. And that when they reached 1000 AD, Christ would come again and that would be that. And that would be it. Well, when that didn't happen, then people began to have this right. anxiety about, well, when will the when return will come? When right. will the Son of Man come again? When will the end come? And, and then they began. Um, identifying, you know, looking at these passages and identifying current events as, oh, see, these are the signs at the end are near. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, with our, with our, with our average folks, remember the printing press is spreading out all these images and ideas, and 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 not only words, but but physical images they could see, artistic images, and so they're they're getting this sense of instability. And then, of course, as folks are moving to cities, and they're and they're they're really experiencing plague in a whole new way, war, and every everything is in front of them. I mean, you're out on the farm, you may hear about something right. far away, but you don't necessarily see it. But when you see it happening and you see all the difficulties, it does, it, it kind of makes that sense of, of end. It makes real. it seem, seem more urgent. Right. So this is kind of, I think, how Calvin comes to this is through his, his age. And so then he goes back into scripture himself. And when he looks at in scripturally, he sees the temple as a mark of a very corrupt regime. Um, and, provide, and as I mentioned, provides us some interesting background about the temple. Um, and as Alan pointed out, of course, the disciples would have, you know, these big stones, how beautiful it was. Josephus also told us how beautiful it was. Um, but also that this is God's home. And so if you would destroy God's home, it must be the end of times, right? right, right. And um, Calvin tied that to an end of time mm -hmm. experience. Um, and also, I think just if you're Jewish, there's a huge sense of awe with it and probably pride. Even if even if you think it's corrupt, it's still mm -hmm. this beautiful space. <laughs> and of course, it's Calvin, it's 16th century, and his his idea that it has become corrupt and that, you know, it's beauty and ostentatious presentation obviously is a reflection of the papacy in his mm. current day. Um, no doubt. Have to tie it to that, right? But Well, it would have been a short step. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, as you point out, I mean, and, and as, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of obvious. Many, many, many people have drawn that connection. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Calvin moves on from the physical temple then, and then to show us how this is a physical thing, but the true temple is eternal. It is Christ. And so this reign of Christ that will come through, that this eternal. And so 
for him, it's not so much this whole thing about some kind of historical predeterminism, which I think people assume is Calvin. Mm. That is not Calvin. <laughs> Actually, that is Calvinism, right. which happens later. Right. So I think that's a really important difference to make. And we've talked a lot about that in our podcast. Um, that Calvin, what he says, is different often from what becomes associated with him later in Calvinism, yeah. and that this is a this is a case of that right now. Sure. Um, so then um, we move on, and we get that there's this tension between the reign of Christ and its perfection, and this period of unrest. Because here the disciples are thinking, well, if it's the reign of Christ, it, this is this beautiful, perfect place, and yet. Um, Jesus says no, and, and his big emphasis, according to Calvin, is that we have to be patient because there's all of this other stuff going on, and it, I think it, I think it makes sense in in terms of um, have it, it, indeed if the if we would see the reign of Christ is now right, and we would see us working in in the kingdom of God now, um, that this idea that there's all kinds of stuff going on that's bad. Mm-hmm. I think that fits with Calvin's idea. Um, he, he blames, he says, look, what is happening is that all of this sin is a response to those who haven't, who haven't um, identified with God. So in other words, this is people that haven't turned to God yet. And I think this is an interesting, they haven't, they haven't claimed their um, identity in Christ. And what's interesting about this is I think there's a tendency to say, Oh, well, it's the chosen people that are, you know, the dualism we talked about, which is often associated with Calvin. My impression is here, Calvin, you know, and of course we always want to say, you know, elect and the the damned, the reprobate. But I think Calvin's vision is still that everyone is saved. There's Mm -hmm. always this hope of that. And so this is simply those people that haven't responded haven't responded in faith. And so what happens is war and famine and all these bad things happen um, because if you have responded in faith, then you're responding to the world differently. And it's been common throughout the ages to attribute the destruction of the temple as a punishment on the Jews for rejecting yeah. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that reflects um, really more anti-Semitic notions on the part of those who attribute that to Jesus than, than, than the original Gospels. Now, you know, there, are, there is this passage where Jesus laments over Jerusalem, and, and you know, he does seem to connect um, the, the things that are going to happen to Jerusalem with their, with their uh, unwillingness to mm-hmm. accept that, you know, his ministry represented a visitation from God. But, um, you know, I think we have to read that as a, a, Jewish, um, um, a Jewish teacher, a Jewish prophet, really, uh, truly lamenting over, right, over his right, people's right. Yes, waywardness. Yes, exactly. Not, not necessarily, not a, not, yeah. a, not a sort of a, a callous, anti-Semitic, well, they got what they deserved. Right, right. I, I think, you know, as we're talking about this, we're talking about the dualism, and we're even talking, a lot of people read Calvin as Calvin is this bad guy who is looking at who he can condemn. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the wrong reading of Calvin. I think Calvin's view is almost always hopeful. Mm-hmm. I don't think he spends... He doesn't spend as much energy there as people want to give him. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it becomes a logical conclusion. I've talked about that to his concept of, of God's sovereignty and predestination. But it's not where he focuses. It's always hopeful. Hopeful that everyone's saved. Hopeful that everybody falls into faith. 
and 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 what a beautiful space that will be. Mm-hmm. And I just really like to point that out because I, I think I think it's easy here to, and I think he comes to the pass this passage with that same hopefulness sure. Sure. instead of that view of dualism damned versus saved. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, finally, in terms of the commentary itself, I like how he goes back to the prophets and he says, look, one of the reasons we can't use this as some kind of historical prediction is simply that the visions of the afterlife that he found in a prophet's not to be the same. Mm -hmm. And he actually lists them. But I wanted to point this out for Alan because here we are with Calvin really trying to look at scripture through scripture. So I thought that was really good. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, I think he's right on there that the that the vision of the end in the prophets is one that is ambiguous. I mean, it clearly points to a time when God will come and intervene and set things right, um, but it is never a roadmap to you know the prediction of you know what events are going to happen. Exactly, when. exactly. And that's the that's one of the big. <laughs> Um, problems I have with apocalyptic thinking is that it has led to this idea that we can somehow come up with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, an exact timetable. Exactly. Yeah. Well, how many people today, you know, as we're in the middle of, of COVID-19, ooh, here's the plague, here it is. <laughs> ooh, did you hear about the earthquake? There it is. And, uh, you know, this whole idea that these are indeed those, those specific events that mm. Jesus is re- referencing. Now, mm. so this is kind of Calvin. Um, is part of it. Um, but it's not necessarily the entire of the uh, uh, apocalyptic world in the Reformation, obviously. Right, right. And so I did a little research. And I looked at one of the historians on this, uh, Robin Barnes. He writes Prophecy and Nenosis, Apocalypticism in the Wake of the Protestant Reformation. So, and he, he's, his work dates way, way back to 1988, but he's, he's, in, he's, active throughout the 90s and um so he's kind of an interesting point because he talks really about the history of apocalypticism um really through uh through through history and you know he credits and i'm sure that alan will attest to this that um that this vision of reading the bible as this prediction really is is played down by augustine and taconius and he and in fact the western church follows augustine saying look it's we're not just living for the end of the world, but that indeed we're supposed to be in an active faith, responding to God's well, call. Well, in, in, in their minds, in their minds, they were living in the yes. reign of Christ. Good point. They were living yes. in the millennium. Yeah. yeah, and and exactly, and they're there. So you're living in it, and you're living out your faith that mm-hmm. way, right? Yeah, right. And so that really impacts. And as Alan so clear, clearly put forward, it's not till one thousand, and that's where we get. Um, uh, Joachim of Fiori or, or Joachim of Fiori, um, 1135 to 1202 are his dates, just to give you an idea. So he's this kind of high middle age figure who comes in and he comes out with what I, I called an early dispensationalist idea, seeing the Trinity in three ages. There's the age of God, the age of Jesus, and now the age of the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, then would reflect this kind of... Um, uh, messianic age um and or millenarian age and so he really is the the person that starts to to reignite this kind of apocalyptic thought and his ideas are picked up not only through the high middle ages when and we've talked about the high middle or the excuse me the late middle ages before as being this time of of 
of real discontent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have the emergence of the bubonic plague um, in the 14th century. We have the schism in the church. Um, We have the Hundred Years' War. We have all this stuff, big stuff going on that's really impacting how people live. Uh, And so this then gets incorporated into the thought of the high Middle Ages and, of course, then is going to impact our our reformers of the early 16th century. Um, And... With that thought came an, an emphasis on the cosmic struggle um, and his desire to figure out who was on God's side. And interestingly enough, and I don't know if I've mentioned this, it's during this age that we see the rise of an age of persecution. Mm. No surprise, right? Yeah, right? An age of pointing fingers. We begin to see the emergence of the witchcraft. We've talked mm. about that before. We get anti-Jewish sentiment. Remember, we start... Jews start being kicked out of, of Europe in the 11th and 12th century. And, of course, that, you know, the final thought, you know, you all know 1492, Columbus, Ocean Blue, but it's also when the, that's the final kicking out of the Jews of Europe, mm-hmm. except for the free cities. So um, just to give you, again, putting in that context. Well, and, I mean, I mean that's, that's the whole mindset, right? It, you know, mm-hmm. the righteous are, are have to have to identify themselves mm-hmm. uh, uh, as over against the wicked and their 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 role is that with God's help they're going to destroy the wicked exactly <laughs> exactly and then of course the printing press and you start to get new publications and and publications about prediction what's going to happen this cosmic war is happening and I I picked out one to point out new Johannes Lichtenberger's pronostication for example but all kind, and they start to look back at old prophets and their predictions for the end of the world. All mm. this pops up. Is Nostradamus in this time frame as well? Yes, he. Well, he's a little bit later. He's a 16th century figure, but we're heading towards him. He picks up on it. Well, but, and you know, in these days, to so many people, he he kind of is the the you know prophet of the end of the world. He is. <laughs> he is, and yet there are so many more know, that right? that fit in there. You know, right. he's he's not alone in his. Not in by his, a long shot. No, no. So that heads us to our mainstream reformers. Um, and of those, Luther, and I think you probably can believe, has the most apocalyptic imagery in his. And, you know, looking at the famous work by Heiko Obermann, Luther, Man Between God and Devil, um, it's really, he's really the one that is reminding us that, that Luther had a very dualistic worldview, right? His scholastic background, he really saw the devil working. And we've, we've heard that a lot in our quotations here. I'm not sure he really ever got over his um, fear of God uh, as a, an angry and vengeful God. I mean, you know, he does come to this notion of justification by faith, but you know, it seems like, you know, he just kind of transferred that over into this uh, idea of the the evil in the world and, and, and his maybe preoccupation with the devil and things yes, like that. Yes, it's still very much part of his thought all the way through. And, you know, I think he's just a, he's a person of his time period. I mean, True. in a way, it's pretty cool because he kind of opens the door for, for new thought. But he's definitely, we can look at, Calvin and say Calvin is um, someone that is is really schooled in humanism, but not Luther. Luther is trained as a scholastic first. And so he's trained in an older worldview. He gets introduced to humanism. He's attracted to it. But it's like dumping all your bad habits. I mean, it's still part of his formation. He just can't get over that uh, medieval theology that was ingrained in him. Exactly, exactly. 
Um, and then another thing, of course, that you know um, we associate with, with Luther is the identification of the Pope as the Antichrist. Again, it's part of that worldview. And yet his use of that and then the pickup of that by, um, by the booksellers and the publishers really then begins to get this into mind because the Antichrist becomes part of that apocalyptic imagery, mm-hmm, right? So we, we have that. Um, part of the whole space. In fact, um, interestingly enough, as we're looking at the Pope as the Antichrist, to give you an idea how far this moves into our modern day, it is actually in the Westminster Confessions, right? So, and in there, chapter 25, this is the original one, by the way, and the one you have in your book of confessions is, um, is updated, but, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against ch- Christ and all that is called that is called God. Boy, <laughs> tell me what you really think about the Pope. <laughs> exactly. Now, again, that's part of his age. Don't be right. too hard on it. But I um, that this had become kind of part of the the, the church is a fight against good and evil. This 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 division that that moved on. And I might add, remember that's a 17th century document. So mm. this is a little bit later, but. It becomes, if you will, embroiled into Calvinism because Calvin, and that moves me on to Calvin, um, is not himself um, so tied up with um, with this idea of Antichrist, this, this dualism. And I think I mentioned that before. His he really doesn't spend a lot of energy thinking about end times and apocalyptic thinking. And mind you, remember he does not do a commentary right. on the Book of Revelation. His focus was not on the future, but the church today and the idea of a kingdom of God being played out in the, in, in, through the people of the church. And, um, you know, this is a huge part of our heritage. We all learn this. We all memorize this now. And yet, I know a lot of us that are confronted by some of these dispensationalists are always kind of thrown aback because sure. it's... and Well, it's, it's so foreign to... Um, a, a frame of thought that was formed by Calvin and the Reformed tradition. Uh, now, there there are plenty of Reformed dispensationalists, obviously. Well, but, we'll get to them. <laughs> but but um, but you know, if you if you if you follow that that tradition of Calvin, you know, I mean, Calvin is influenced by Augustine. Augustine is an mm-hmm. amillennialist. He exactly. basically believes that the church is living in the reign of Christ. Exactly. I, I mean, that's basically my view as well. We're, we're living in the reign of Christ. And just because it says a thousand years in the book of Revelation doesn't mean it's in a literal 1,000 years, as we you know. Right, right. Well, and so, um, you know, moving on. Um, so that's Calvin proper. That doesn't mean that the Reformed tradition, Calvinism, doesn't get impacted mm-hmm. by um, this kind of apocalypticism. And part of that moves through, um, There's, you know, I've talked before, you've got your main, your mainstream reformers, but you've got all these radicals out there, and they're floating around ideas. And you know how ideas, and they're picked up, again, by the printing press. They're, they're moving around. So there's a lot of radicals who have really bought into this. It's people like Thomas Munster. And I think I mentioned my buddy, um, Michael Steifel, who, and in fact, I, I found the exact day he thought the world would end, October 19th, 1533, at 8 a.m. <laughs> and it, of course, did not end. And all of his followers, his congregation, you know, sold all the goods. We've talked about him before. I love mm. him. And uh, then it didn't end. Yeah. Right? And so all these folks, and they have many different ways they approach it. So this isn't even one 
in one general thing, but that they saw that this cosmic battle was at hand. Mm. It does get picked up by, by reformed folks. And yeah. so it does appear yeah. in their writing later on. And particularly we can talk about, for example, um, what happens in England and we could talk about the Puritans and this becomes part of the Puritan heritage mm -hmm. later on as it's picked up really in the 17th century. And of course this becomes, or I, I would say even, even later 16th century, like by, by Oliver Cromwell. Um, and so we have, uh, so we, as I said, so we tend to see even within our broad reformed tradition, these reformed dispensationalists, yeah. but don't tie that to Calvin because that yeah. wasn't his space. Right. So that's what I have for you today. Okay. Thanks, yeah. Christy. You're welcome. Hi, everybody. We are back. And this is, of course, in some ways, such an interesting topic. Um, I want to say a fun topic, but maybe that's <laughs> a fair way to put it. But um, I think it's interesting um, to think about this world, you know, as we are preaching every Sunday of how, you know, we're living in this time of, uh, of, of Christ, that the kingdom of God is here, and we're trying to live as Christians. And yet we have all this stuff around us and how we deal with stuff like COVID-19, like all these natural disasters taking place and, and how do we, how do we understand it in our world? So Alan, I'm going to let you talk about that. Yeah. Thanks Christy. Um, you know, when we were talking about this in the break, Christy asked me if I knew anything about dispensationalism, I kind of have to chuckle to myself because my, my, uh, my Oxford King James Bible that I have from 1975 is an edition of the Schofield reference Bible, which has all of his notes in it. And Schofield was probably the most popular dispensationalist of, uh, the early to mid 20th century. He was the, um, dispensationalist guy. And, and, you know, he lays out his, mm -hmm. his theory of all the, the seven ages, you know, that, that, uh, is the, at the heart of dispensationalism. You know, one of the things that always troubled me about dispensationalism was that in each of the different dispensations, there's a different way for people to relate to God. Mm. <laughs> Which, right. And that always, it's like, well, what is God have seven different personalities? You mm -hmm. know, that just always never, that never really made any sense to me. Mm -hmm. And especially when I read the Bible, you know, I mean, I guess we can come to the Bible and say, well, there's the Old Testament dispensation and the New Testament dispensation. And that's probably the way, uh, you know, I, I taught at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. I had colleagues who taught at Dallas Theological Seminary where you have to sign a statement affirming dispensationalism to go there. And, what, you know, I had friends there and, and they, called, they called them, I think they called it modified dispensationalism or moderate dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. Basically, they saw two dispensations, the, the old covenant and the new covenant oh, mm -hmm. but you know from my reading of the bible the new covenant is simply a renewal and an, and an expansion of the original covenant mm -hmm. there's nothing really new about it other than you know instead of god saying i'll be your god and you'll be my people and i will i will provide for you and you will obey me god simply says i will be your god and you will be my people and this will happen because of what i do not because of anything you do right right yeah <laughs> and and so um um, but it's, it's still the original covenant as we talked last, last week, you know, that's the basic biblical framework that I felt that I right. found in my reading of the Bible. And that's of course, 
that's of course what I learned. But I will say in teaching a class on the Old Testament, why is not what people, many no, people believe, even in our denomination. I know. So. I know. And, and it's kind of sad, but, um, you know, to me, I, you know, and I, you know, I saw the movie, you know, Late Great Planet Earth, <laughs> you know, I didn't read the book, but I, there was a movie back in oh. the 70s that, oh, there you go. that was, that was, that was showing in the theaters. You could oh, go to the theater gosh. and watch the Late Great no, Planet I Earth. No, that where, you know, the whole idea was that Jesus was going to come back in 1978 or 1988. And, um, um, you know, by the time Tim LaHaye and his uh, Left Behind series came along, you know, in the 90s, I was already so thoroughly steeped in, in, in biblical uh, and theological um, uh, training that I, you know, <laughs> I didn't even bother to waste any time with that because I saw it for what it was. It mm-hmm. was simply um, a guy taking advantage of people's anxieties about the millennium to sell books, you know, yeah. basically. Yeah, well, and we still we see that all the time, don't we? Oh, you know? we do. We yeah. do. We do. Um, and, 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 and that's exactly to me what dispen- that's the, that's the allure. That's the draw of dispensationalism is because it becomes this almost simplistic escape hatch mechanism Absolutely. for dealing with the troubles and the trials and the afflictions exactly. that we have to deal with exactly. in this life. And it provides you with that kind of who are saved, who are not saved. They're not saved. I don't really have to deal with them. Obviously, if they weren't in that situation, they would be saved. You know what? Am I am I right? It's am, yes. It's that? a very all or nothing kind of thing. It's a very simplistic. You know, um, um, I'm in, and that means that that I'm going to be raptured out of here before any of the really bad things start to happen. So I don't have to worry about it. I don't mm-hmm. have to be afraid. And you know, if you really read the Bible, that's not what it says. No. It says that we will all undergo persecution. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's it's. You know, again, after after years of biblical study and theological study, it just became obvious to me that the dispensationalism makes no sense either biblically or theologically. Right, uh, but it, you know, it, it just appeals to people's fear, and it gives people an easy out from the 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 tension of not knowing. You know, I I work with a, a woman who came to the Presbyterian Church because her husband was a member, this, her new husband, but she had clearly grown grown up and was clearly still theologically a dispensationalist and you know when when she hits you with the rapture just something that we don't talk about because it's not biblical and i remember having this discussion i said you know um i'll call her karen i said karen it's not biblical and for somebody who who in other ways is trained in what she thinks is biblical truth to have me say this this isn't biblical was something new to her she mm-hmm. she was sure that's what the bible said how do you respond to that well i mean the closest thing you come to something like that is in first thessalonians where where paul talks about how you know the trump shall resound and christ shall descend and those of us who are alive shall shall meet him but the point again you know it's like people have taken that verse out of context because the mm-hmm. the point of that passage is that there's some Christians who have died 
And the people at the church in Thessalonica are concerned that somehow they're going to be left out when Jesus returns. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, you know, the dead in Christ will rise first, and Mm -hmm. then we who are alive will will meet him in the air. So his point is, you know, they're not going to be left out. They're going to be right there in the midst of it all. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, again, what are we to make of all that? Um, um, I don't know that we have enough to, to come up with a you know, a solid scenario of saying, well, this is what the return of Christ is going to look right, like. Right. These are the events that we can expect. And we want that. But, but you know, the other response to the question about the rapture is that um, typically the rapture is posited in the book of Revelation. So if you've read the book of Revelation, you know, John reports these visions that he has. And the first three chapters of Revelation, he talks about his vision of Christ being among the lampstands, which is a symbol for the churches. And then you've got these letters to the churches. And that's the content of, of the first three chapters. And then in chapter four and five, John is taken to the throne room of God and has this vision of God on the throne and the worship that God is receiving from those who are gathered around him. And, and also the lamb who was slain is receiving mm-hmm. this worship as well. Well, the fact that the scene goes from the churches on earth to the throne room of heaven most dispensationalists will say, well, we have to assume that the rapture has taken place in between. <laughs> so there, there's yeah, nothing There's right. nothing that say, say, says anything about a rapture there. They fill it they in fill because it they in. assume that's what's going on. Let me ask you, you might know this. I'm thinking about this idea of rapture, which just seems out of thin air. Is there any Greek philosophical background for it or is there any greek word no. that is associated this is just really made up <laughs> well yeah sorry it's well really i mean it's a, it's i mean it's it's a concept that that came in with dispensationalism yeah. and really jay and darby of the of the 18 of the 19th century and ci schofield of the 20th century they're the ones who who so really, it's a really okay. it's a very modern concept yeah it's a modern concept with modern terminology you don't find it in the history of the church yeah well modern church right you find it in the history of the modern church right but, it's new. because it, yeah, it originated new. in the in the, yeah. in the right. 19th century right. basically yeah which is really which is really interesting i keep i keep thinking about uh, jehovah's witnesses too and that's a group mm. you know the apocalyptic well uh, there's there are there are so many groups like that and and they originated out of this notion of of apocalypticism Mm -hmm. and sort of the apocalypticism run amok. Right. Um, There were several groups um, uh, that originated in the late 19th century because there was a teacher here or a teacher there who predicted the return of Christ. And Mm -hmm. when Jesus didn't come physically, then it was reinterpreted in a different way and they formed their own church to to sort of carry on in that tradition. Well, you know, as we're talking about this, what I'm seeing is, Fear-based religion versus hope-based religion. And I think that's the key for us is, you know, we live in a world where, unfortunately, technology has made the world much smaller and much bigger at the same time, as I've said before. And so it's smaller in that we are much more closely connected Mm -hmm. to people uh, around the world. But it's bigger in the sense that, you know, even if you live on the farm, if you've got cable news or if you've got internet, you can't escape the tragedies that happen 
all you know all right. over the world, whether it's in our country or whether it's in another place. Mm-hmm. And and so you know we see this, and and that really has always been sort of the the crux of the problem of of apocalypticism. It, it very, very much, apocalypticism is very much an attempt to to answer the question of theodicy. How can we right. justify God's ways? You know, um, how can God be faithful and good and loving if there's so much suffering and trouble and, and you know, these catastrophes happen, you know, a tsunami or an earthquake or a hurricane kills innocent people. You know, how can we reconcile that? And apocalypticism becomes a way to answer that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it is, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an answer that's based on fear. And it's an mm-hmm. answer that is very exclusive in that it, you know, it's almost selfish and well, self-centered it, it, it because it's like. It requires you to respond out of fear. When we respond out of fear, we we look for how not to respond in hope and love, but rather to, it's very inward looking. We withdraw and we, be, mm-hmm. you know, the church becomes then sort of this fortress and we withdraw into mm-hmm. the fortress and, and we, we associate only with Christians. And you see this, I mean, yeah. you know, we, we have to send our children only to Christian schools. Yes. We, we buy yes. only from Christian businesses, you know, and, and we become this little sort of Christian ghetto and, and we, we don't interact at all with people outside of a circle that we know to be Christian. And that's a part of it. Um, part of it is, you know, just this, um, I think, the, the more, the bigger the world has become, the, the more aware we are of all the things that make life so hard. Right, right. Um, the, the more people feel the tension over not knowing what's going, what, what tomorrow will bring. Right, right. What will tomorrow bring? We don't know. And, you know, it could bring um, a great blessing. It could bring disaster. We mm-hmm. don't know. It right. could bring tragedy. And most people, I, I think a lot of people really don't feel comfortable living in that tension of, right. you know, I don't know, but you know, the Bible tells us, and I think the answer of Jesus in this, in this discourse is the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, you know, continue to persevere in your faith in Jesus, continue to persevere in the life of discipleship, continue to love God, continue to love others, continue to uh, build up yourselves in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ and continue to stay connected with God and to, and to, to stay connected to the spiritual resources of the, of the community of disciples so that you can deal with this and so that you can respond to these tragedies and these and you can respond to the things that scare you with faith and hope and love and you have the courage to do that right exactly um uh, that's the biblical message right right but that's not an easy thing to do no it isn't an easy thing to do and that's it takes it takes daily it takes daily focus it takes right. you have to be intentional about it on it, a daily basis right right uh, you have to be you have to be sometimes intentional about it on an hourly basis i agree and yet if if you respond to that way you it's like you feel instead of 
reading everything in terms of fear, it's like you kind of feel surrounded in God's prayers and loves. I mean, it, it allows you to open yourself to how God is actually working in your there life. There is a peace yeah, about There's it. really a peace there about it. There is a peace mm-hmm. about it, yes. And that is the call, I think, I is think to so live too. into that hope and live into that peace. You know, And, and it, it, it's like we, we said before with that whole biblical framework that begins with God's love. If we, if we really trust that our whole life is lived in the unconditional and irrevocable love of God, that no matter what happens to us, God is going to see us through and God loves us. That gives us the courage to have faith, to trust that tomorrow is in God's hands, mm-hmm. whatever right. the future is going to bring is in right. God's hands, and, and that um, we can have the hope that, exactly. that God is going to bring good right. out of whatever evil there may be, right. and that ultimately God's final word will be good mm-hmm. over all the evil that's ever happened right. in, in this world. And, and then, therefore, we have the courage to interact with love. Exactly. With, with those, exactly. Who, those, who, those who are hurting and those right. who are not, just right. with everybody that we right. encounter. Right, and, and that becomes a whole different way of living as opposed to, well... You know, I'm one of the righteous. I'm one of the elect. I'm one of the chosen. Right. I'm in, and right. all that ca- all that counts is that I'm in, and that means I'm safe. Yep. And I'm going to associate with those other ones who are in too. And 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 those the rest of you, I don't really care because God's going to destroy you. Yeah. That's <laughs> which is just an almost a, heartless approach. It's, it's a heartless approach, yeah. and it's and and I think it. It perpetuates itself actually into evil kind of perpetuating. You know what I mean? Because, because when you, when you don't care what happens to people, you can do right. Fairly evil things. You can, you can, you can treat them in fairly evil ways, which, you know, it reminds me, it reminds me then as you think about that prayer of confession at the beginning of service Mm -hmm. that we all do and that reminder that God's calling us to be actors in this world now yes. and to respond to everybody, all well, creation. And it comes back, you know, one of the things that really bothered me most about dispensationalism is the Bible affirms, the New Testament affirms, we've talked about this before, one of the, one of the major affirmations of the New Testament is not only that Jesus was born as the incarnate Son of God, not only that Jesus died on the cross for all of us, not only that God raised him from the dead, but that he ascended to the right hand of God and that he reigns from the right hand of God now. So why in the world do we have to wait for some millennial thousand-year reign at some point in the future for Jesus Christ to reign if the Bible says that Christ is reigning now. And again, to me, it's like, it's like a failure of nerve. It's a failure of faith, you know, that Uh to, to think that no, Christ isn't reigning now. Satan rules now. Satan rules now. Yeah. Woo. No, 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 no. no. Uh, The triune God is the one who rules over this world. I mean, what would Calvin say about the notion that Satan rules now, you know, with his notion, with his robust theology of the sovereignty of God? Yeah, exactly. No, No. there is, there is a, God who rules yeah, over this exactly. world. Kind of, you're right. It, but when you, when you use that framework, it it really kind of takes the power away from God. It's really ugly. Yeah, it is. It is a it is a failure of nerve. It is a failure of mm-hmm. faith. And is a it is hopeless. It is full of fear, and it attributes way too much power to evil and Satan. I agree and, exactly. And, and and you know, to me, to me, it's it's you know, it just it just abandons 
the biblical faith that, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are the one who rule over this world. Yeah. Now, they don't rule over everything that happens and they don't determine everything that happens right now because God's will is not yet done on earth as it is in heaven. Exactly. But that is the goal toward which everything is. is moving. That is. And I think if we live in that framework, we really can live lives filled of of Christ's peace, and, and that's and, huge, and full of joy, and, and full of well, hope, of course, and, and all full those of other love. pieces, right? Yeah. That 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 go with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome, Alan. Thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you for setting me up. <laughs> <laughs> that's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.